So as we continue to dig into Jesus this week, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and you can uh, turn there in your Bibles if you'd like to, or your touchpads, or your iPhones. Uh, We'll also have it on the screen in just a minute. But uh, I was the recipient of a very informal survey uh, done a couple of Sundays ago in the fourth grade Sunday school classroom. And uh, all of these notes are about the lead pastor of this church. And I just thought you would want to know the results of this informal survey. So I'm I'm just going to read, I'm not going to read all of the answers to you, but I'm going to read some of them. Uh, You're a great preacher. Clearly that person knows what they're talking about. Uh, Josh just says, thanks. You're welcome. You're a good pastor. You are amazing. And amazing is in all capitals. You are an awesome pastor. And then a a couple that are my favorites. Uh, This one says, I am glad my parents listened to you. (laughs) Won't give that person away, but their last name is McGinnis. (laughs) It was great. Dan was sitting right there in the first service. It was was wonderful. Oh, I said I wouldn't give any names away. Um, And this one, which I'm going to frame this, I think. You are cooler than my dad. (laughs) <laughs> no name on, on that one. I haven't been cool since like 1989. So I was really excited to find out, find out how cool I am. So I'm going to make wallpaper out of these and put them in my, in my office. But it's really good to know that, uh, that I'm a great pastor. So now I can just go out and kind of live any way I want to. I'm glad I have all that behind me. I'm glad, I, I'm glad to know that the fourth graders have been enlightened and that I could enlighten you through their messages. And now I can just kind of go my merry way, right? I can just kind of live any way I want to. It doesn't really matter what happens from here. I have Jesus has saved me and the fourth graders love me. So I'm, I'm good to go. So now I can just kind of go out there and, and uh, do whatever comes to mind. Colossians chapter three, verses one through 11. Hear the word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, um, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator." Here, there is not Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for, for Bob and for, for Amy uh, memorizing and sharing your word with us and encouraging us uh, by their uh, efforts. Lord, it is so important that your words sink deeply into our lives, that we do dig in, that we do understand what you have communicated to us. Uh, You have given us your word as a blessing for our lives, as something that guards and protects our hearts, as something that that keeps us from uh, wandering in wrong directions. And as we look at one of those potential wrong directions this morning, we think about what it might mean to just, just say we're a Christian, but 
not worry about uh, how we feel or think or, or act, uh, that we could end up living our lives in, in grave error, uh, do great harm not only to ourselves, but to others. So Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would teach it to us this morning. Lord, we haven't come here to hear the words of man, to hear the latest philosophy or theory. Lord, we get that all the rest of the week. We want to come and sit at the feet of our Lord Jesus and hear the truth that he gives us and have it applied to our lives. Sometimes we resist that. Sometimes it scares us. Sometimes it overwhelms us. So Lord, I pray that you would do your work in our heart for our good and for your glory. Lord, don't let me stand in the way of what you want to teach us this morning. Uh, Forgive me for my sin, anything that would be an obstacle. Lord Jesus, please come and teach us. We pray in your name. Amen. So last week, we talked about the life-sucking, shallow-thinking, void-of-value, false gospel of legalism. This morning, we're going to look at the same problem, but from the other side of the coin, a little word called license, and we'll talk about that, although I've kind of given you an idea of where that's going already. But let me take us back to last Sunday for just a second and remind us of a couple of terms. When we say the gospel, when we use that word, the gospel, to what are we referring? We're speaking about salvation by grace alone, through faith in Christ Jesus alone. So apart from Christ, on our own, we have sinned against God. We have offended God. We have violated his commands. And in doing so, we've hurt people that are created in the image of God. So we've hurt God's people, and God will hold us accountable for that. We need to be justified. We need, we need help. We need salvation. We need to to be out from under the wrath of God. How does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen by trying harder. It doesn't happen by focusing on our outward behavior and trying to kind of pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It happens when we put our faith in what Christ did for us on the cross where he paid the price for our sins. A couple weeks on Good Friday, we're going to look at that. We're going to focus on that and we're going to celebrate that. Legalism says that I'm adding my external behavior, my rule keeping, as a means of earning my salvation. It's important that we get that sentence. It's not saying that my behavior doesn't change once I'm saved. The notion of legalism is I'm going to help Jesus. What he did on the cross was great, but I, I got to add some rules to that. I got to make sure that I'm, I'm a really good person in that. So it's Jesus plus, Okay. This week, you kind of look at it as as Jesus minus, as we talk about license and asking the question, does transformation matter? So let's look at the sermon in a sentence for just a second. License, the, the bad theology, the bad thinking of license, ignores the transformation of our feelings, of our thinking, of our behavior in the life of the disciples of Jesus or Jesus' disciples, and therefore we must reject it. So license says it doesn't really matter. After you, after you come to Jesus and say, please forgive me for my sins, I, I need a savior. And Jesus says, yes, after that, all bets are off. You can live any way you want to. It really doesn't matter. That's what we would call license. And scripture teaches something very different than that. Your feelings, your emotions, your thinking, your intellect, your logic, and your actions do not add to your salvation, but they are a product of your salvation. 
and they are a product of your relationship with God. And so Paul is going to kind of clear the air this morning and make sure that we understand this. I have four observations in this text. The first is this. The change in our condition, the change in the condition uh, when we come to Christ, leads to changes in our feelings or leads to to changes in our emotions. Look at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The transformation is that you and I, apart from Christ, were spiritually dead. But in Christ, we have been made alive. Now, I'm going to take you to another uh, letter that Paul wrote, same guy that wrote Colossians. If you back up a couple of letters, uh, you have the, the letter to the Ephesians. And Paul is talking about this topic of salvation and about spiritual death and spiritual life. If you wanted to read the entire passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, kind of fleshes the whole thing out. I've, I've shrunk it down just a little bit for the sake of time. So Paul says this, talking about himself and on behalf of, of every person that's ever come to Christ for salvation. You were, before you came to Christ, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. So I chose to rebel against God. That's a trespass. A trespass is knowing what I'm supposed to do and doing the opposite, right? I've also violated God's law by sin. Sin means falling short. So I know that I'm supposed to do some good things. I know I'm supposed to be nice to folks. I know I'm supposed to be a good husband. I know I'm supposed to be a caring father. But even though I know that, I don't always do that as well as I should. That's a sin. I fall short. That has left me spiritually dead. Dead people can't help themselves. Nothing they can do for themselves. They need new life. And what happens but God being rich in mercy Because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, did what? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There's a change in our condition. We have gone from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And and the logical follow-up question to that might be, well, Tom, if that's true, what evidence should I look for in my life to know that I actually have new life in Christ? How can I be assured that, that my faith is a genuine faith? And that's where Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, going back to, to, to chapter 3 of Colossians verse 1, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. In other words, Paul is saying that in seeking the things that are above, he's saying that, that there will be a transformation, a change in the way you feel about things. We're seeking, we're longing, there's a desire. These are our emotions to see something different in our lives. Our priorities begin to change and they begin to reflect and look like the emotions of Jesus. Let's think about this for a minute. If you go back to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four books in the New Testament that talk about the life of Jesus. They, they talk about the historical events of the life of Jesus, and they talk about his emotions, do they not? I'm just going to name a couple of them for us this morning, but think about, you know, we're getting ready to enter into Holy Week, and Holy Week gets kicked off with what? Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. The Gospels tell us that as Jesus is standing back and he's looking over Jerusalem, and he knows that collectively the people in Jerusalem are going to reject him. They're not going to believe in him. What's the emotional response? He sits down and he weeps. He cries like a baby because he's sad that they refuse to put their faith in him. He experiences that emotion with all of his heart. He is deeply grieved by unbelief. 
But you also look at sometimes when Jesus interacts with some people that are pretty self-righteous, that think they're pretty good. They actually, are, we would call them the legalists. They've added a whole bunch of rules and they're, they're on the outside trying to keep every one of them. And that kind of ticks Jesus off. Jesus has some very hard word for folks who think that they're self-righteous, who think they're better than everybody else. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Think about that. A tomb looks very nice on the outside, right? Looks the marble or the stone, all that looks good. But what's inside of it? The bones of a decaying dead corpse, right? It's ugly on the inside. Jesus says, you guys are like, like cups that people wash on the outside, but leave last night's supper on the inside. And then you hand it to somebody here, use this for your, for your dinner tonight. Cook in this, you're like, no, you didn't clean the most important parts. You left, you left the inside filthy. And that made Jesus angry, that people would think that they could be self-righteous and think themselves better than others. And yet think about when somebody comes to Jesus for faith, right? A blind guy says, Jesus, can you help me? Jesus says, what do you want? He says, I want to receive my sight. And Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. And he celebrates and he, and, he, and he rejoices and he gets excited when somebody places their faith in the right thing. Jesus said one day, there's more rejoicing in heaven when one person comes to salvation than when a hundred unrighteous people don't. So there, there, there's more celebrating over one lost soul who puts their faith in me. And he celebrates and he, and he shares these emotions. The change in our condition, coming to Christ for salvation, is going to lead to a change in our feelings. We're going to begin to reflect the emotion of Jesus when we engage in the world around us. I was in Charleston, South Carolina last week um, looking for warm weather. It was relatively warm, but I was on study break. I was working on uh, sermons for the spring and this fall. And I ran out of laundry, and I had to find a coin-operated laundry to do a couple of loads of laundry. So I go across downtown Charleston. I was on the, the north side, ended up on the south side, found a, found a laundry. I go, and I sit down, and I've got a book, and I put my laundry in. I start going. There's a guy. There's a seat next to me, and then there's a guy sitting next in the next seat over. And he looks at me. He goes, you're not from around here, are you? I'm like, the, the Yankees stand out that much? And, you know, we just, we looked that obvious. I was an African-American gentleman. We began to enter into a conversation. He said, what, you know, what are you doing in town? I said, I'm here. I'm studying. I'm on, I'm on break. And uh, he said, oh, you're, you're a pastor. He said, yeah, I'm a member of the Emmanuel AME Church here in downtown Charleston. Now, that should ring a bell for us if we're paying attention. Because last year, nine people were murdered in that church, which actually, as it turned out, was two blocks from the laundromat where we were sitting having this conversation. She said, that's my church. And we began to talk about that. And after a few minutes, here's two guys, probably never see each other again, from radically different backgrounds, radically different experiences, both weeping in a laundromat, no less, over the brokenness of this world. Faith in Christ changes our emotions. We begin to feel as Jesus feels. Secondly, not only does our change in condition, Paul say, lead to a change in feelings, but it also a change in condition leads to a change in the way we think. Look at verse two. Not only are we seeking those things above, giving our emotions to God, but he says, set your minds, your intellect, your thinking, your logic, your reason, use whatever word you want there, on things that are above, not that on things that are on earth. Now what Jesus is saying is you can't ever think about this world again. You know, if you, you, you were thinking you were going to go home and watch, you know, Sports Center this, this evening. Nope, you can't do that anymore because that's of this world. Or you, you can't go out and have a, have a nice steak dinner because a steak is of this world and that would be sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. Set your mind is begin to think in the way that God thinks. 
Begin to exercise your intellect in a way that God exercises his. Begin to follow God with your mind. You worship God with your mind actively every day. You think about those gospels again, looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Most of the, a lot of the time in those gospels, what do you see Jesus doing? He's teaching. In fact, his most famous sermon that we did, a, we did a, a sermon series on about a year and a half ago was on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It says, Jesus looked around, saw the crowds, and said to the disciples, everybody gather around. And then it says, Jesus sat down, and he taught them, saying, and then we have a snapshot of that sermon in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. God wants your mind. When you come to Christ for salvation, God wants to transform your mind. He begins the process of changing the way you and I think. So we must ask ourselves this question, am I a student of Scripture? Not am I vaguely familiar with Scripture, not do I have a general passing understanding of Scripture, but if I'm a follower of Jesus, am I committing myself to have my mind transformed so it thinks the way that God would shape my thinking? Another way I'm going to word this question is, does God's word or does culture shape my thinking? In other words, do I look at the culture and say, okay, well, culture's kind of going that way. So I need to make sure that, that whatever I believe about the Bible kind of fits into that. And whatever's in the Bible that doesn't fit into that must be wrong. So I'm going to set that aside. Or rather, do we say God's word is eternal truth? It never changes. It's as true today as it was 10,000 years ago and 10,000 years from now. So wherever culture goes, culture goes. I can't, I can't direct the whims and the, the fickleness of my culture, but I'm going to look at my culture through the lens of Scripture and not the other way around. This is incredibly important in our day and age as, our, as the mores of our culture, the morals and the values of our culture are all over the map and, and going in a million different directions. And God says, I want you to know that when you come to me for faith, I'm going to transform your mind. I'm going to teach you how to think so you can understand the world around you through the lens of my scripture and the truth that you find in your relationship with me, which is eternal truth that never changes and is 100% constant all the time. So Paul says a change of condition means a change of feeling. It means a change of thinking. But then in verses 3 and 4, he kind of interrupts himself. So if you've ever been watching TV and they said, but wait, for an important announcement, I, I watch Fox News every once in a while, and every once in a while you'll hear this ping, 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 and it'll go Fox News alert. And you're like, oh my gosh, what happened? And it'll be like, you know, uh, Donald Trump called Mark Rubio a bad name. Wait, that's a Fox News alert? I mean, how, 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 haven't they been doing that for a few months now? You know, an, uh, an alert ought to be something that kind of grabs us. And it's like Paul stops. He says, wait a minute, before, before we continue this condition, I want you to remember who you are as a disciple. Look at verses 3 and 4. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I think maybe what, what God was doing in Paul's mind as he wrote these verses, well, Paul says, there's going to be a change in the way you feel. There's going to be a change in the way you think. And you might go, well, I see some of that, but maybe I don't see enough. I mean, how much is enough and how fast should I change? And maybe I'm not a Christian because I'm not changing fast enough. It's almost like Paul says, no, wait a minute, before you start to scare yourself, you know, before you start to assume the worst about yourself, which we're really good at doing, let me remind you what God has done for you. And he says three things. He says this, you have died. You've died to it. You have died uh, and your life is hidden with Christ. What have I died to? I've died to the sin being the controlling influence in my life. 
I've died to my rebellion being my identity. It doesn't mean I don't occasionally still sin. It doesn't mean I, I don't get it wrong every once in a while. But what's happened is that no longer identifies me. My sin does not have a grip on my thinking and on my feeling and on my behavior. Secondly, he says, not only have we died, but we're hidden in Christ. In other words, we are secure in his salvation. We are identified with him in the eyes of our heavenly father. So if we're in Christ, when God looks at us, he's looking through Jesus to see us because we are in Christ. And what does he see? He sees the perfection of Jesus. No, you don't live out the perfection of Jesus every day. Of course, I don't live out the perfection of Jesus every moment of every day, but I am in Christ. And you, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if your faith is in him, you're in Christ and you're identified by his perfection and by his glory and by his beauty. You own that because God has given that to you. And ultimately it will become a reality because the last thing he says in these verses, and you will also appear with him in glory. There'll be a day where it won't be faith anymore. It will be reality. It won't be something that, I'm, that I am hoping for in the future. It'll be something that I'm experiencing in that eternal moment that goes on and on forever. So it's almost like Paul says, don't be discouraged. Just remember who you are while this transformation is taking place in your life. But now, meanwhile, back at the transformation, Paul would say, and also there's not only a change in our feelings, there's not only a change in our thinking, but, but thirdly and lastly, there's a change in the condition leads to a change in behavior. We begin to act differently because our emotions and our thinking are changing. Therefore, the outward expression of our lives is beginning to change. And he starts by talking about the negative change, the things we're going to begin to move away from. Look at verses five and six. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Kind of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Paul says that what you're going to spend part of your, your life doing now is you're going to be putting to death these things that used to define you. And the notion here of putting to death doesn't mean a one-time thing. I mean, when we think about death, we think about it happens once, right? Uh, a person is executed and they die, or a person has a heart attack and, and they die, or a person um, you know, is, is, uh, dies of old age, whatever the case. But we think about it as a one-time thing. The way Paul writes this, he says, every day you need to continually be putting to death these things. It's an ongoing practice in our lives. So when I wake up in the morning, I read God's word, I got to remember, oh yeah, there's some negative things that I need to be moving away from. And it's interesting that here, Paul basically says, continually be rid of living, living only for self-gratification at the expense of others. The words that Paul uses here address sexual sin. Sexual sin is the most intensely selfish sin there is because it is not victimless. It uses someone else to gain my pleasure. Sexual sin is, I would say sexual sin is more intensely selfish than greed or, or hoarding or any other type of financial sin because I objectify another human being. You say, well, I just do that in my mind. I'm not really hurting anybody. You're hurting yourself and you're also hurting that person, whether you realize it or not. You say, well, I maybe just look at some stuff on the internet, but I would never actually go and do something. Yeah, but did you stop to think about the fact that, that maybe what you're looking at on the internet is actually coming out of human tra trafficking? That maybe what you're looking at happened because someone's been enslaved to prostitution? 
2.4 million people in the world, the UN tells us today, are, are, in, are in slave trafficking of some way, human trafficking of some way. And 2.1 million is the number that they use to talk about primarily women and children that have been enslaved into sex trafficking. So don't tell me it's not hurting anybody. Don't tell me that our sexual lust is a victimless crime. God forbid that we would ever think that idiotic notion of pardon my strong language there, but it simply makes no sense. And so Paul calls us out on one of the most personal sins in order to get our attention and says, this is something that has to continually be put to death. This is something that, that you've got to think about and, and consistently having your mind shaped around this so that you understand that moment by moment, day by day, this struggle needs to be something that you give careful attention to. But he doesn't stop there. Not only continually be rid of living for self-gratification at the expense of others, but look at verses 8 and 9. It says this, but now you must put them all away. So the same notion of getting, getting these things out of here. And it's, it's that same thing, continually be putting away what? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Paul says we need to continually be ridding ourselves of hateful emotions and hateful speech. The thoughts and the words that follow that thought, those thoughts that are harmful to others. So I get angry with someone and what do I do? I, I spew venom at them, right? I get upset with someone. I have malice in my heart towards someone. What do I do? I spread gossip and slander about them. I use my words to praise God on Sunday and then to go and curse people that are made in God's image the other six days of the week. Paul says this is a, a, an invasive sin that affects all of us. We're always constantly wrestling with those emotions. So we have to know that what God is doing in our life is transforming us so that we can actively be taking those things out of our lives. And then one other thing under the change in behavior in verse 11, while it doesn't say continually be rid of this, I think the assumption is there. Here, which is the church, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Most of that language is probably familiar to you, except maybe barbarian and Scythian. So barbarian would be like somebody from the country. Okay, so we might call him a hick, you know, kind of a backwoods hick. And a Scythian was someone who was from the city, from the metropolitan area, well-educated and an intellectual. And so Paul's saying there, there's neither uh, separation between Jews and Gentiles, but there's also no separation between anybody who is, who is wise according to the standards of this world or maybe foolish according to the standards of the world, whether you're free or whether you've been enslaved. If you're in Christ, you belong to him. In other words, we're to put off continually any bigotry in our lives, any ways in which we judge people by their outward appearance, whether it be the color of their skin or the city, part of the city in which they live, whatever, however you want to fill in that blank, Paul says that is to be done away with. Brothers and sisters, how can we claim new life in Christ Jesus? and to devalue the change that he brings to our lives. How can we say it's of no account? It doesn't matter how we go and we live from here. How can we embrace, embrace the notion of license? I'm saved, but how I think and feel and behave is irrelevant. As I said, how I think and how I feel and how I act does not save me, but it is a product of God's salvation in my life. 
I'm not going to be perfect. I'm not going to get it right every day. But that's the transformation that God wants to do. So how do we apply this passage to our lives this morning? Well, I'll just give you a couple real quickly. The first is I, I want to just remind us again of the need for honesty and transparency in this, in this transformation. Sin is the most powerful thing in the world besides Jesus. Hear this. Sin is the most powerful force in the world besides Jesus, but you're in Christ. So you have the power to overcome. I have the power to overcome sin. I have the power to be continually putting these things off because Christ is in me and he is more powerful. That should allow me to be able to share those things with you. That should allow us to have conversations with one another and say, where are we struggling? What's the difficulty? What's the difficulty with sexual temptation in my life? Where's that a challenge for me? Where where have I lost control the way I speak to other people and, and I've just become such an angry person? The church has to be a place that's safe to have those kinds of conversations in order that we can care for one another and nurture one another and support one another and help apply the word of God in each other's lives. But we've got to be able to acknowledge it with one another. So I'm walking out of a, a restaurant. I, I had lunch with a, with a new friend earlier this week and walking out of the restaurant. I'm going to my car. And as I'm going to my car, there's an elderly woman. I don't know how, but I'm going to say in her late 80s, maybe she's kind of a little bit bent over, walking kind of slow. And she's at her door. She's trying to open the door to her car. And it's a little bit windy and she's having a little trouble at the door. And I'm, I'm like, I can help her with her door. So I woke up and said, let me get that for her. And I opened the door. Well, have you ever seen cars that go down the road that have like these flags on them, like sports flags, you know, the, for their favorite team, whatever. You see them more in the Southeast than the SEC where they play real football. But um, I had to, Stacy. I'm sorry. Um, but she had a St. Louis Blues flag on her car, right? Now, I'm, I'm a hockey fanatic. I love hockey. You don't see a whole lot of 88-year-old women who kind of walk a little slow that are real Blues fans. And so I said, oh, you're a St. Louis Blues fan. I, I love your flag on your car. She goes, well, I like the Blues, but the facts are at my age, you park, you go in for an hour, you can't remember where the car is. <laughs> so, so it's the blues in the winter, it's the cardinals in the summer, and then she said something not very nice about the, about the, the recently departed St. Louis Rams. And I came, oh, well, okay. So at, at about 88, you can say whatever comes to your mind. This is, this is good stuff. So I said, well, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you knew where the flag was, and I, I closed the door for her, she drove off. Why don't we put our flags up with one another? Why don't we say, hey, you know what, this is a real temptation for me. This is a real struggle for me. I went in there and I forgot, and now, now I've lost my way. Could Green Tree Community Church be a place where we have that kind of honesty, where we have that kind of transparency? We don't judge each other. If you're fearful to share something like that because of what somebody will say, come to one of the pastors or one of the elders. We won't judge you. We won't pat you on the head and say it's okay, it doesn't matter how you live, but we certainly won't be self-righteous with you because we all struggle with the same sins. So I want to challenge us and encourage us to allow God's Word to create transparency to create honesty in this transformation that's taking place. Which leads me to say specifically to each one of us, we need to, to be a brother or be a sister to others. If we want that kind of support from others, then we need to be ready to come alongside each other and say, how can I pray for you? How can I love you? We don't agree on everything. We're different people. We come from different backgrounds, but we're one in Christ. How can we, how can we nurture one another? Because weather don't matter to family. Now, what on earth does that mean? 
Well, I was having a conversation last week with Ed Spiller, who's a pastor across the street. And Ed and I are going to do a pulpit swap in April. So he'll be here, I think, the 17th of April, and I'll be next door. We're going to preach at each other's churches. But Ed and I were having this conversation, and we, and we kind of disagreed. We, we kind of came to the conclusion that we, we just didn't agree on this topic. And we went our separate ways. And I thought later, I said, I hope I didn't hurt his feelings. I hope I haven't you know, bothered him by that. So I called him on the phone and said, hey, Ed, are, are, are we good? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, we disagreed on this thing. He said, Tom, weather don't matter to family. I said, excuse me? He said, you're my brother no matter what. I said, oh, thank you for making it simple so I could, even I could catch on, right? He goes, weather doesn't change family. So I love you no matter what because you're my brother in Christ. Could we create by God's grace and by the power of his Holy Spirit and by his word a place where Christians treated each other like that? Where disciples of Jesus really could be honest about their struggles, about their challenges, where disciples of Jesus could love one another actively as brothers and sisters, not with judgment, but with encouragement and accountability and prayer. If God were to give us the grace to do that, he would change not only our lives, but he would use us to change this community. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be creating within us an environment that celebrates and embraces your transforming work in our lives. It doesn't ignore it. It doesn't say, well, we won't say, Lord, it doesn't matter how we live because we're saved. So that's what's most important. But rather, Father, that we would see that you have saved us and that you're also changing us. So we're not earning our salvation, but our salvation is being worked out in our lives as we followed you. And this morning, Lord, as we've looked at these challenges to put off that which destroys our lives. Father, I know in this room, how many of us struggle with sexual temptation? How many of us struggle with the temptation of gossip and just being malicious to one another? Father, help us by your power to create a place where we can honestly confess, where we can honestly share with one another, where, where we, can, we can lovingly point out to one another ways in which we can be growing in you, ways in which your transformation can be taking a deeper hold in our lives, that we would be spiritually healthy, disciples of Jesus, ready to share his grace with the world. We pray in his name. Amen.